say very, very quickly um, that, um, you know, I have in mind um, that the learning should be my father, um, actually, I had a Kamasmatseva today, they put it up a uh, headstone, and um, I think because he was a teacher for so many years, and especially a Torah teacher, that um, I feel that this is uh, good for him. So um, not to neg negate anyone who wishes to um, sponsor a year, but they just dedicated the series in general, Lilunish Mato. Um, okay, so Sefer Shoptim. We, those of you who have gone through Sefer Yoshua with me um, will realize immediately, immediately that Sefer Shoptim is very, very different than Sefer Yoshua. I'd like to begin at the beginning. I like to uh, put everything in its place. So I just want to give a, a very brief overview, okay? In terms of the books of the Tanakh, right? The Torah is the, the Chumash, right? The Nevi'im, we have two parts of the Nevi'im. Nevi'im Rishonim and Nevi'im Achronim. And the Nevi'im Rishonim consists of four Svarim. Yeshua Shoftim, Shmola Malachim. The Aleph and Bets are arbitrary Christian divisions which have no um, real halachic basis, but they were adopted uh, because they were convenient. So in those four books, the stories are chronological, even though it's not intended to be history books. And we have, each book has its own character. So Sefer Shoftim, if, if you want to look into this, you could look in Baba Basra, pages 14 and 15. We have lots of uh, English uh, Gemaras now if you want to look something up. On those two pages, it tells us when each, um, uh, who wrote each Sefer. So Sefer Yoshua was written by uh, Yoshua. Now, of course, the same controversy about the Torah. If the Torah was written by Moshe, who wrote the rest of the last eight Sukkim after Moshe died. Oh, here we have the same thing with Yoshua, but the general idea is that Yoshua wrote the book. Sefer Shoftim was written by Shmuel Hanavi. And this becomes very important when we understand who Shmuel Hanavi was and how he ushered in the era of, of the kings and what he was trying to say here. And as we go along, we're going to, to look at these questions, you know, here and there. But in general, I just want you to know that's, that's really what's going on there. The book of Yoshua is really a very... Uh, exceptional safer because it really tells the story of one generation. It's about uh, 28 years at the most. And that generation is exceptionally righteous. They're, they are like, I mean, if we just look at the end of Safe Yoshua, right? This is chapter 24, verse 31. And the children of Israel served God all the days of Yeshua, all the days of the elders who lived long after Yeshua, and that knew all of God, what God had done for Israel. Basically, I'm summarizing that. If you look through the Savior, you see one sin. 
I mean, there are hints of issues that are like this and that, but it's basically Achan who steals from the Chayram of Yericho, and that's it. It's an unparalleled golden era in Jewish history where the Jewish people had a great leader, they followed the leader, they did what he said, they followed God, and they were rewarded. Hashem opened the land for them, and in they came. Now, if you want to understand Sefer Shoftim, first of all, first of all, Sefer Shoftim is many generations. The, the length of Sefer Shoftim in years is somewhere between 350 and 400 years long, right? It has an entirely different character. Some of the uh, aspects of Sefer Shoftim that we're going to pay attention to, um, characteristics, okay, just number one, okay? It's a very unusual type of leadership, right? We don't have a dynasty. We don't have a king and a sick king's son. We have a charismatic series of leaders who come forward when necessary, fade into the woodwork when their job is done. And, you know, they do their jobs. We have all types, right? And in fact, the Gemara uh, compares, the Baba Basra compares Moshe to the sun and Yeshua to the moon. And uh, they would say the Shoftim are like the stars. There's big ones, there's little ones, there's prophets, there's bullies. There's completely outrageous characters like Shimshon, like we don't even know what box to put him in. And every single one of them has their own story. So Sefer Shoftim is characterized by a very different kind of leadership, which is not at all secure. Number two, which is important to pay attention to, is there's, there is really, except for the moments when the, the Shoftim take over and leave, we don't really have a central authority. Um, every tribe has its own shtick. This becomes apparent right away in the first parak, as I'll show you. And number three, the spiritual level of the Jews at this time is going downhill. Whereas Sefi Yoshua, they are righteous, there's like one sin in there. Uh, we cannot say the same thing in Sefi Shoftim. There's a lot of backsliding, going back, going down, going up, up and down. Very, very beautiful and fascinating stories and a lot of inspiration and a lot of uh, learning. But the general direction is down. There's very little prophecy, very little. There's a ton of idol worship. And then if we're going past the Ben Adam Lamako, Ben Allah Haver is also very problematic. The tribes don't get always along with each other. We see civil wars, we see terrible, you know, traumatic things at the end. And so we're looking at a different era. And we'll see right away how this manifests itself when we look at the text. Another thing I want to uh, explain is that the structure of Sefer Shoftim is a little bit like your English composition. It's got an introduction and a body and a conclusion. Okay, remember how we, you know, I know my Israeli children are going to wonder what is that? But in America, we always learned introduction, body, conclusion. That's the way you write a composition. So how does this work? There are 21 chapters in Sefer Shoftim. The first two chapters are what I would call introduction. 
chapter one, which I want to work with you today. Chapter one is sort of a bridge from Sefer Shoftim. A lot of the information in chapter one, we already learned in Sefer Shoftim, although if you didn't do Sefer Yoshua, I'm, I'm sorry, we didn't Sefer Yoshua. Sefer, a lot of things in the first chapter were already told in Sefer Yoshua, but if you didn't do Sefer Yoshua, do not worry because it will, it will uh, become clear and you can always go back and look at it or, or listen to the Shiro whenever you want. Um, so that's chapter one. Chapter two explains the cycle of Shoftim, which um, I'll show you when we go to the screen share. Um, and, and then the chapters three to 16 are the chronological stories of the judges, one after another. Interesting stories, interesting judges, very, very fascinating stuff. And the last five chapters, chapters 17 and 18, of the story of the Pesel Micha. This is what I call the conclusion of our composition. And that's because these stories are set outside of the chronology and they have very, very serious corruption and uh, sinful things to teach us. And they're sort of framed by the phrase, by Yamim HaHem Ein Melech Yisrael, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was good in his own eyes. So in effect, Shmuel Hanavi takes these last five chapters, the 17 and 18, which is essentially Pesel Micha, and furthermore about that, and the last three chapters, the chapter Yudtes, which is the story of the gang rape of the Pelegesh of Giva, and chapters 20 and 21, which is a horrific civil war following the gang rape. So these are two really horrific stories. And Shmuel uses them as a sort of ending to tell us how far down we've gone and how problematic it is that there's no king in Israel. And of course, we have to understand king, not just a man with a crown, but as a metaphorical reference to God, right? There's no king in Israel because they've gone down um, spiritually, the level's gone down. So that's the structure of Sefer Shoftim. We start with our introduction, Paragal Paragbet, the stories, and then the conclusion. Okay, so uh, without further ado, we'll go to the screen share. And, okay. Okay, wow. All right. Okay, so first of all, I mentioned the cycle. Okay. The cycle of Shoftim, which is important to understand, this is a very basic, important part of Sefer Shoftim. And it, it goes like this. There's peace in the land. Israel serves the Lord. Okay. Then Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. I hope you could all see this. And God punishes Israel. Israel is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge, Israel is delivered, and then there's peace in the land. This is the cycle of Sefer Shoftim, and we're going to see how it plays itself out as we learn through the different stories. But uh, I just find this fascinating because it kind of seems to me that this is not just the cycle of Sefer Shoftim, but it is the cycle of Jewish history. Right? The 
Jewish people, they do what's right. Kaddish Baruch Hu is with us. Kaddish Baruch Hu helps us. The Jews sin. God punishes them. We have trouble from all sorts of uh, different places. And then we cry out to the Lord with tefillah. If we're lucky, we do tshuva. But tefillah is also Kaddish Baruch Hu has Rahmanis. Kaddish Baruch Hu will give us someone to help us. And then there is you know, by Yishkot, Haaretz, Arbeim Shana, the general period of peace in the time of Shoftim was Arbeim Shana. So let's go into the text. So first, I want to show you uh, the complexity of Perak Aleph. Perak Aleph, it's, it's actually, let me just show you a map first, okay, and I'll explain to you what's going on here. Again, this is a map that I took from the Judaica Press, and what I like about it is that it's English, it's dividing the tribes into their territories as they've been divided in Sefer Yoshua. And if you look here, we have the two and a half tribes here, Ruvain, Gad, and Menashe, Hefer Menashe. And that's on the East Bank. And on the West Bank, we have the nine and a half tribes. The way Sefer, the way Perak Aleph unfolds is we begin in the South with Yehuda, and we move up Binyamin, Ephraim, Menashe, right? We go up to upwards and we assess how is this particular tribe getting along with their conquest? Because after the death of Yoshua, right? Uh, here. After the death of Yoshua, the Jewish people are left with land that they're supposed to conquer. And this is what I think of as the original sin. Did they conquer or didn't they conquer? You know, in, in Sefer Yoshua, Yoshua says to them, like, guys, finish up. How long will you be lazy? Go and do your stuff. And they don't. So Shoftim begins here. This is Pasuk Aleph. Now, um, I should have opened Yoshua for you as a contrast, but okay. I should have opened it in front of you, but I'll, I'll read it to you, okay? The contrast to the beginning of Sefer Yoshua is marked, right? Right? Okay. When Sefer Yoshua begins, Hashem says to Yoshua, Moshe, my servant, has died. Now get up and conquer the land. I'm giving it all to you. Wherever you go, it's all yours. We have a leader. We have a succession. We have a command. We have a path. We have a, the encouragement and... Uh, Promise of a Kodesh Here we start by Yeshua, after Yeshua dies, by Yeshalu The people say, What do we do now? What happens now? So the first thing we see is there's no successor. When Moshe Rabbeinu dies, he, before he dies, he says to Shemuel, you know, what's going to be with my people? They need a leader. 
And we don't see that here. Yoshua dies. Now, at the end of Yoshua, it says there are elders who live long after him, but there's no address. There's no one address. It's just, so the, they go and they ask. They don't know what to do. So they go to ask Hashem, which is, means to the Kohen Gadol, right? And Elazar has died, so the Kohen Gadol is his son, Pinchas. And they go to the Kohen Gadol and they ask the woman between the, the, the breastplate, which, which lights up, answer to their questions, and they say, who's going to go and fight the Canaanim now? Like, what, what do we do? So first of all, we don't have a leader. Second of all, they don't know what to do. And third of all, we have a, a problem because any time, any time the leader dies, all the enemies smell weakness and they start circling. This is a good time to attack. This is time when people are weak. Now, this is not particular to the Tanakh. This is always true. As soon as a strong leader gets, goes off the scene, people start thinking, how can we take advantage? The enemies come in. So now they have to be very careful to show a strong hand or they're going to be overrun. The Kaddish Baruch is not giving them direction. They don't have a, a person to ask. They're very confused. This is not a good beginning. Okay, this is not promising. Okay, next, right? Hashem says, Yehuda will go up. I will give the land in his hand. So of course, this is okay because we know Yehuda is always a leader, but we don't know who in Yehuda. We don't have a name, a person. This is an issue, right? We also wonder what's going to happen with Yehuda. Now take a look at Pasadimo. So Yehuda says to Shimon, his brother, and Rashi says, this is Shevet Shimon, the two tribes. It sounds like an individual speaking, but these seems to be the two tribes. And Yehuda makes a deal with Shimon. He says, listen, you help me conquer my portion, and I'll help you conquer your portion. Now, back in the time of Yoshua, this is legit, right? Yoshua divides up the land, and he tells the seven and a half tribe who didn't get their territory, here's, your, here's where you're supposed to be, go get it. So every tribe has a responsibility to conquer their land. But when Yoshua goes out to battle, everyone follows him. Now we have Yehuda and Shimon. Now, teamwork is great, right? That's a good life lesson. Partnership, so we can do it, it together better. But still, now if we look at the map, to understand Yoshua, I'm sorry, to understand Yehuda, where is Shimon? Shimon is in the south of Yehuda. So they are natural allies. And in fact, a lot of the territory below, if you go the, the chapter in Yoshua that details the territory of Yehuda is chapter 15. A lot of the territory of Shimon is right in the middle of the territory of Yehuda. And this is very interesting. We have to go back to the brachas of Yaakov, which weren't in every case such a bracha. And what he says to Shimon Levi, you guys, you messed up big, right? It's so dumb, I don't want to be part of this thing. I'm going to divide you up. 
So Levi, as you see, is divided up. Levi has 48 cities, but Shimon has just this little bit of an enclave within Yehuda. And as a matter of fact, the second set of brachot, which is the brachot of Moshe and Zot HaBracha coming up in a few weeks, Shimon is the only tribe that gets no bracha. Shimon sinned with, the, with uh, Zimri in the story of the Baal Pa'or, and Moshe is not so happy with him, but you see that Shimon is fading out here. So Yehuda's actually doing a chesed by joining him, and we don't see that Shimon reciprocates. Yehuda says, come on, Shimon, come with me. Okay, so let's go back to the text. Okay, so now we're moving into a slightly different story. Okay, and I just want you to pay attention. The way this chapter unfolds, and I usually like to give you uh, an overview of the chapter, so maybe we'll take a minute and look at that. Okay, the way the chapter unfolds here, you see in this particular uh, version, you see that it's divided up according to paragraphs. We see over here, this is the conquest of Yushalayim in particular in Bezek. This is further conquest of Yehuda. And then uh, the story here of Debir, the story of Hebron, further con con conquest, some of them which were told about in Yoshua chapter 15. And then look down here in verse 22, now we're talking about Beit Yosef. We're going up geographically, and we have the Beit Yosef. There's a story. Beit Yosef really. There's three tribes to Beit. Uh, Beit Yosef is Ephraim and Menashe, right? So Ephraim and Menashe seem to work together, and they conquer Beit El, which is Luz, and that's an interesting story. And then you have verse 27 to 36, and here we detail each tribe what they did and did not do, mostly what they did not do. So we're moving geographically northward and spiritually southward. We're just going down, 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 right? So we start off with Yehuda, which is pretty successful and pretty righteous, and then we go downhill. Okay, Pasuk Dalid, right? Yehuda goes, now, what's Bezek? Where is Bezek? Bezek seems to be south of Yushalayim, probably in what's today Gilo, according to the Dat Mikra. And it's a kind of a suburb. And it's a city where, that is ruled by a man by the name of Adoni Bezek. And pay attention to the fact that he's never called a king. And if you look at Sefer Yoshua, Yoshua conquers 31 kings. Bezek is not one of them. Okay, right? And they found Adoni Bezek in Bezek, and they fought him, and they struck the Kanani and the Prezi. Remember, there's seven nations that were fighting. The seventh nation, Girgashi, left. They moved to Africa, but happily ever after. I do want to reiterate, for those of you who are new to this class, that when Yoshua comes into the land, it's a very, very problematic issue in Sefer Yoshua, that they come in and they start wiping people out. We don't like that sort of thing. It's very not Jewish. We're Rachmanim. We're, we're merciful people. 
But Yeshua sends out, as is discussed in, in the Gemara, Yeshua sends out, and the Rambam brings it down also, he gives them options. Number one, you may leave the country. And this is what the, the, the nation of the Gilgashi do. They leave the country, they move to Africa, and they live happily ever after. So there's six nations left, really. The Kanani, the Prezi, the Amori, the Chiti, the Chidi, and the Yerusi. So you have the six nations. Now they're given a choice to make peace under our terms, which means they have to accept the seven laws of the sons of Noah, and they have to be subservient to the Jews, or they can fight. And if they fight, they have to take the consequences. So it's not like they didn't have a choice. I just want to reiterate that. So here, Yehuda is fighting their fight. They fight in Bezek, Pasuk Vav. And this king flees, like, this is very nice. You, this is your people, and you run away, and you take care of yourself, like a rat leaving the sinking ship. But they chase him, and this gets a little creepy. By they chase him, and they grabbed him. And they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Not, again, not such a Jewish thing. Like, what on earth is that about? I look at Pasuk Zion, and then we could figure this out. In Pasuk Zion, by Yomar Doni Bezek, Shivim Malachim, Bahonus Yedeim Ragleya Mikutzatim, Hayumalaktim Tachat Shulchani, Kasher Asiti, Kain Shilamli Elohim, by Yibi Uru Shalayim, by Yamachan. And Adoni Bezek said, 70 kings, 70 kings. Thumbs of their hands and of their feet cut off were malactin, scavenging under my table. As I did, so did God pay me back. And they brought him to Shalayim and he died there. So the story of Adoni Bezek is very uh, instructive on many levels. All right. Our first question is how did you do such a thing? We don't do that stuff. That's not our thing. Okay, let's understand first of all who is Adoni Bezek. So we don't call him a king, right? And if you look right here, Rashi says, Adoni Bezek Rashi says, how look at how great these kings of Canaan were, right? That Adoni Bezek wasn't even given the title king, and yet he was powerful enough and rich enough that he had 70 conquered kings, right? Mutilated, scavenging for scraps under his table. So let's, let's examine this for a second. What is the point if, of cutting off someone's thumb and, and big toes? It's already horrific. I don't have to tell you how disgusting that is. Okay, first of all, you can never hold a sword again. You can never defend yourself or fight again. So this is a way of completely um, rendering them powerless. Number two, you can't run away because your feet don't work. So he takes these kings, who every one of them is a king, and he puts them under his table like a dog. Like, how do you pick up a piece of food if you have no thumb, right? 
So they had to just grab it with their mouths or with their fingers, whatever they could do in order to eat. And this is what he did to them. And the Jews do that to him. And he says, which is what we call matzik etadin. He, he justifies his own judgment. He accepts the judgment. He said, this is actually what they say in Israel, Magieli. I deserve that. Look what I did. And that's what God did to me. So there's a lot to this story. Um, first of all, I want to show you the Malbim here. The Malbim. Okay. Right. For, you know what? I'll skip. Go back to. I'll go back to the Ralbag for a second because I want you to see the contrast. The Ralbag says over here, right? He it notes that they brought him. No, 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 no. They cut off uh, his toes and and uh, thumbs to make the people, the other kings of Israel, fearful, because now they want to. Uh, they might want to attack because Yeshua has died. So this is going to say, hey, don't mess with the Jews. You never know what they're going to do to you. Don't mess with us. Right? So that's one thing. right? But the Malbim says something different. Like, we're not the type. We're not, um, we're not cruel. right? We don't do that. So the Red Malbim says, right? <laughs> That's what God put in their minds to do this to him. That they didn't do anybody. He's being a little bit uh, understating it. This is not, this is against Jewish law. We don't mutilate people. We don't do that. God put it in their minds to do that to him because he was getting his mida connected mida, but that is not a Jewish thing. It's not according to Jewish law. It's a very, very interesting story. Okay, so that's question number one. Next question is why do they take him to Shalayim? And here it seems from the different things, that there's, there's a, a natural kind of death that happens even after this, what they did to him, he dies naturally. And this is sort of, an indication to us that he received kapara. Rabbeinu Bahaya says that vidui, confessing your sin, is a prerequisite to tshuva. You cannot do tshuva if you don't recognize what you did wrong. And here we are in the month of Elo, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and doing our tshuva. And the Navi is telling us how great is it? This non-Jewish man, right, was given kapara. He was merited to die in Ushalayim, a natural death, because he was able to say, I sinned, and God punished me for it, and I recognize that. So what a great thing it is, and that's a very important life lesson, to admit when you do something wrong. It's very, very hard for us to admit when you do something wrong. The first thing we do is blame somebody else. It's classic. You made me do it. If it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't have done it. So here we're being taught, take responsibility. I did wrong. This is a great, great thing to do. And that is what Rabbein Baha'i is saying. That would bring you the kapara.
Okay, moving along. So they come and they fight Yerushalayim, and they capture and they uh, put the people to the sword and they burn the city. Yerushalayim is definitely an issue, okay? I'm just going to raise the issue for you, because if you go back to Sefer Yoshua, you'll see in chapter 15, this is problematic. There is a whole discussion of Yerushalayim. I'll give you the short version. You don't have so much time for it. Yerushalayim is also called Yavus, and that is the Jebusites. And it really isn't fully conquered until the time of David Amalek, which is way in the future, a few hundred years in the future. And it is divided up territorially. It's mostly Binyamin, and it's a little bit of Yehuda. Okay, it's on the border. Here's Jerusalem. It's mostly Binyamin a little bit of Yehuda. So what Yehuda does is not necessarily supported by Binyamin. And there are various controversies about when the city was captured, what was captured, why were the Yavusi left there? Basically the Chazal think that Abraham made a covenant with Abimelech, who was not of the seven nations. He was a Philistine. And they made a covenant that they would not ever hurt each other's descendants for a generation. So the Chazal say there were still descendants of that Abimelech in Yerushalayim, and it was not able to be fully conquered until that last one died. Other theories are that Yerushalayim was burnt. It was definitely conquered in the time of Yeshua because it's one of the 31 kings. And he was one of the people who started up after the story of the Givonim, right? In chapter nine and chapter 10, he was the one who starts up the revolt, the revolt uh, against the Jews and uh, against the Gibonim. So Yerushalayim was definitely conquered. Yavusi remained there, and it never is quite fully resolved until David Amelach. So let's go on. Now, more of Yehuda. More conquest. Okay, so let's talk about Hebron for a moment. Hebron was also known as Kiryat Arba. Arba is usually understood to refer to the four giants. Sheshai, Chiman, and Talmai were three of the giants, plus their father, who either, we don't know his name, or his name was Arba, or he was counted as the four. But in other words, Yehuda, if you notice here, is able to conquer giants. Very important. Also, the Kiryat Arba is also, some people say, because the four couples that are sleeping in Marath Machpela, Adarachaba, Abram Sarah, Yitzhak and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah. Now we come to the story of Aksa. I'm going to go through the whole story and then we can uh, examine it, but you have to understand that this particular story is told almost verbatim in Yeshua chapter 15. Take a look here, right? Just for a sample, right? You see, it's almost word for word, very few variations. They go to this place, Debir, and it's formerly called Kiryat Sefer. Now, 
there is a Kiryat Sefer today, which is in the Modian area. This has nothing to do with Kiryat Sefer because this is south of Yerushalayim, okay? We are talking about uh, Devir being all the way down here somewhere after Hebron, right? And the Dat Mikra puts it, I think it's, um, I think it's the 16 kilometers. Um, I wanna, don't quote me. Something like 16 kilometers south of Yushalayim or south of Hebron, I don't remember. But it's definitely not where Kiryat Sefer is today. So the Kiryat Sefer, right, is a place that needs to be conquered. And Khalid gets up and he says, the one who captures, I will give him Asa, my daughter, for a wife. Now, Asa, right, is a very, very beautiful girl. And uh, the Gemara says that people, that it's, that it's a, um, a contraction, a, an anagram of Kas, that whoever saw her was angry with his wife for not being so beautiful. I don't particularly like that Gemara, but that's just me. Okay, anyway, this is a bizarre, not Jewish thing. If you conquer the city, you marry the princess. What is up with that? Okay, we'll get back to that. And it was captured. He captured Asnia ben Kenaz, who was the younger brother of Khalif, and he gave him Asnia's order for a wife. Now, Asnia was the son of Kenaz, and Khalif was the son of Yifune, but also Khalif is also called Khalif ben Yifune HaKnezi. So there's various theories about what's going on here. Either Knezi is a family name, right? and uh, he's a full brother, or Yefuna was uh, Kali's father, and then he died, and his mother married Kenaz, and Asniel clearly must be much, much younger than Kali, because Kali at this point is 85. And Asniel, if he's alive, then he must have been under 20 at the time of the Exodus, which means he's gonna be a good 20 years at least younger than Kali. And he's marrying his niece. And it was when she came that she cajoled him to ask from her father for a field. And she slid off the titznach, litznoach is actually the modern day Hebrew word for paratroopers, sanchanim. They come down. So she kind of gets off that donkey. What's the problem? It, it's a very interesting sort of scenario here because it seems like she wants Asniel to ask Kalev for this uh, for this request, and he won't do it. She's trying to get him to do it, and he won't do it. So she does it herself. Okay, it's her father. It's Kalev's big brother. I mean, it's Asniel's big brother. So perhaps that would explain it. But I do want to point out that one of uh, one time taught a course in women in Tanakh, and I, I, I defy anyone to find me a woman in the Tanakh who's a wimp. There's no wimpy women in the Tanakh. <laughs> find it fascinating. You, she may get one pasuk, but she has what to say. She is going to have her say. So never think that women have nothing to say in the Tanakh, right? Pasuk tetvab. And Kali says, what's the problem? Batomelo, pasuk tetvab. In other words, Ahs is now speaking to her father, Kali. Havali bracha, give me a bracha. Ki eretanegiv netatani, menatata ligulot mayim. 
You must give me a bracha, she says. I need a bracha because you gave me a very dry, arid land and I need water. I need springs of water. And Kali therefore gave her upper springs and lower springs. This is a bizarre story on many levels and we have to unpack it. Okay, so let's start with the idea of offering your daughter as a reward, okay? So first of all, Shaul does the same thing. Shaul does the same thing in the story of Goliath. He says, whoever kills Goliath will marry the, my daughter. What's the rationale here? It's, it's sort of, uh, we have to understand it as a, you know, we, you know, we expect the Kaddish Baruch Hu to help the person with the siyata deshmaya to accomplish this task, and that will be because the Hashem is with this person, and therefore they will be an appropriate shidduch for the daughter. So that would be, I don't know what that, that would be one idea. Okay, um, but this this it's a complicated situation here because what is this? What is this? Um, I need water, I need a bracha. What is going on here? And um, why are we told the story twice in almost exactly the same words? So the Malbim says here, Okay, this story, I'm giving you a loose translation. You can see the model here if you want to follow. This story and the story of Ahsa were told before in Sefer Yeshua. And this story happened then. And we're told here twice. Oh, he's talking about the Kani. Okay, that comes afterwards in our chapter. Okay, here. The Gemara in Tamura says, 3,000 halachas were forgotten in the time of the morning of Moshe, and Asniel returned them with his sharp learning, right? And there it says, you've given me dry land, that was to say, a man who is dry from anything, he has nothing but Torah, okay? The, the long version of the story, okay, I'll just I'll explain to you, it's a very, very interesting thing. First of all, if you notice, the name of this place is Kiryat Sefer. Kiryat Sefer, the place of the book. The Medrash goes into a discussion here of this story, and anything that's told over twice, almost verbatim, Zelmer Darshan, what's going on here? So the Pshat meaning here, we'll take the story in two levels. The, the Malbim says one, one telling it could be a Pshat, the other tell has to be a Drash. So the Pshat is that we have a problem with conquest. We're gonna see it in the rest of the chapter. I'm gonna to have to talk faster because we're running out of time. Right, we see a problem with conquest. So you have to give an incentive. It's down south, it's dry, it's desert. I don't want it. I'm not gonna knock my brains out for it. No, you can marry the great, you know, Achsa if you conquer it. The Pshat, and she says, I have nothing to do with this land. It's so dry. I need water to irrigate it. I need springs. And actually, Das Mikra says that south of Hebron, uh, on the Beersheba Highway, there are springs that cross the highway, um, lower springs and upper springs, which is just um, unbelievable. 
Now, what's the drush? The drush, the mom says, if it's draw, if it's told twice, that means that there's a drush here. What's the drush? The drush is Asniel ben Kanaz was known for his tremendous scholarship. He was a huge Talmud Chacham. Yoshua, when Moshe is about to die, Moshe says to Yoshua, is there anything else you would like me to tell you? And Yoshua says, Moshe, I've been with you night and day. I never left you. Said so yourself. Right? What more could I learn? And Moshe is disturbed by this. And Yoshua immediately is punished by forgetting many halachot. There's different numbers about it, 300 halachas, and 1700 shilas come up. And people were so angry with Yoshua that Hashem says, you know, just go out to war because you're not going to be able to get this back. But Asnil, with his great scholarship, was able to return those halachas. And so he conquered the town of the book. He conquered the book. And because he conquered the book, because he was such a Tamar Chacham, Kalev gave him his daughter for a wife. As, and that's a very much more Jewish shit you know? The girl, you get the girl if you're a big Tamar Chacham. <laughs> but, but what is she asking for the bracha? And that's also an interesting story. Water is always a sign of bracha. It's a sign of Torah. She needs that Torah to help her support herself because her husband is a Tamachacham, which is kind of sort of, I think, a nod to the whole Kolo system. We have to support Atamidachachamim. But uh, of course, I'm not getting into the political aspects of having everybody in Kolel, but you see that the, the Torah does support the idea of taking an exceptional Tamachacham and helping him out. Okay, next story. Pasuk Tetzayin. We must never confuse the Kani and the Kanani. The Kani, Kufyud Nun, Kayin, these are descendants of Yisrael. These are our allies and many converts. And they leave Yeratzbarim, the city of Dates, which is the area of Yericho, a very lush, lush farmland. And they go to the desert of Yehuda in the south of Arad to be there with Yehuda. And the Chazal say, they, they went to learn Torah from Yehuda. But that's Mikra gives it a more pshat understanding that they, they didn't need all the farmland, they needed more pasture land, and the South was better for that. But you see here, that it's, it's definitely able to be interpreted as the descendants of Yisrael, and this is definitely a life lesson for us. The descendants of Yisrael who helped us, we always helped them, we were always connected to them, and there's a tremendous amount of Akara Satov in that story. Beautiful expression of love for Torah, to follow Yehuda and Asniel, the great Talachacham, into the desert to learn from him. Okay. This is not spot in the north, it's spot in the south. These are three of the chief Philistine cities, right? The other two were Ashdod and um, uh, Gat, Ashkelon, and Ekron. There were cities on the coast, right? Cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, right? There's Ashdod, Gat, and Ekron. There's Ekron. And these five cities were principally uh, uh, Plushti cities. There was a push me, pull you fight between the Plushti and the Jews for a long, long time. Now, Yetet is extremely important. By Yehoshua, by Yehoshua, God was with Yehuda and they conquered the mountain. 
They couldn't conquer the plain. The dwellers of the plain had iron chariots. Now, if you think about this strategically, it makes no sense because conquering a mountain is always harder than conquering the valley. But they weren't able, it says, what does that mean, Lola Hoish? Now in Yoshua, the same story is told way at the end of the chapter, very long chapter. Um, okay. Let's see if I can find this. I set it up and I can't find it, and I'm running out of time. So here. They weren't able to take them out, to uh, take over. So here it says they weren't able, and here it says, you didn't do that. So the question is, what's worse? They weren't able or they didn't? And this is not so clear what's going on here. Apparently, we're meant to learn something from this. We're meant to learn that, number one, if God helps you, you can conquer the mountain, the iron chariots, and everything else. If you're not doing it, maybe you just don't want to do it. Maybe it's just too much trouble for you. Right? Lola Horish. Yehuda, you were so successful. Harish was with you. It says, Yehuda. How come you didn't finish the job? So we were ending, even Yehuda that did so much, conquered the giants, conquered Dvir, conquered Hebron, conquered so much. And even here we say, well, you know, they just let the Kanani stay there. Okay. Kaleb inherits Hebron, which is actually a city of Levium, but he got the outskirts of it because this is where he prayed at the Masmach Pela not to be involved, uh, not to be taken in by the spies, and he is rewarded for his stand. And Chafalaf, and again, we've switched, notice, from Yehuda to Binyamin. The, the children of Binyamin did not get rid of the Yavusi in Yerushalayim. By Yeshua, Yavusi, Binyamin, Binyamin, Yerushalayim, and the Yavusi stayed in Yerushalayim with the Binyamin Binyamin until today. Now, whenever it says until today, it usually means until the writer of the book, which is Shmuel, not that much later. Now we're going to move to Ephraim and Menashe. Fascinating story. Fascinating story. So the children of Yosef, now again, we see teamwork. Shem and Yehuda work together. Ephraim and Menashe work together. Teamwork is very good. Another lesson for us. United we stand and divided we fall for all of us Americans. That's the way it goes. But you do see here a difference because in Sefer Yoshua, Yoshua is the leader, all the tribes follow Yoshua and they all help each other and they're united in the big battles. And here it's like sort of beginning to fray the fabric of the unity of the tribes. Yehuda and Shimon are doing their thing, and they also do that thing in the sea in the north, a similar story. Okay, so they come to the city named Beit El, previously called Luz. Now Luz is the name of a nut, a hazelnut. And the watchers, they're spying out the city. They don't know how to get in there. 
And the guards watching, they finally see someone leaving the city. They say, tell us how to get in there and we will do good for you. And he shows in Pesach Cafe, the entrance of the city. They saved him in this whole city. Does that sound familiar? This is like Yericho, Rachav is saved and her whole family is saved for helping the Jews. An important lesson here, when we start you know, saying the Jews were conquerors and imperialists, if you helped, you got saved. And not only that, Pasuk Chavah, Vayelach Ha'ish, Eretz Ha'chitim, Vayibanir, Vayikrash Maluz, Hushmar HaYomazeh. And the man went up north, different area, and he built a city and he called it Luz, the same city, the Hazelnut, Hushmar HaYomazeh. It is its name till today. Now, first of all, the whole story with the Luz, the Hazelnut, the hazelnut tree was planted in front of a cave. There was a hole in the tree. Rabbi Shimon says this in the Gemara, you have to go through the tree, the hole in the tree, into the cave, and that way you get into the city. They were staring at the city. There were trees all around it. It was a circular city with a wall. They had no idea how to get in. This man helped them in. And in, as a reward for this, right, he went to live happily ever after up north and make himself a new city called Luz. Now, Radak on this, very, very interesting Radak. Radak says, um, because he called the same name, right? The Drash, oh, I'm sorry, that's right here, over Drash. He said, it's his name. And now an unbelievable message. This city, Luz, where they make tehillet. Now, tehillet is a very valuable subject, uh, uh, item. If you make tehillet, you have parnasa forever because Jews will pay a lot of money for tehillet. It's a very rare, costly substance. So in Luz, they had permanent parnasa from the, the tehillet. He Luz, this is the same city that Sanhayrev came and didn't mess it up. Nebuchadnezzar came didn't destroy it. And af the is the angel of death, cannot get at you if you live and lose. Ella's Kanim Shabbat. Kanim Shabbat, it's elderly people living it. Bisman Shatatam Katzalan. At the time when their knowledge was short, when they had no more patience to live. They would have to take them out of Luz in order to die. And actually, that does happen at a certain, certain point. A person has no more patience to live. He's tired of living. Seen it. And uh, have to take them out of the city. What, is the, what does this mean? What are we learning here? This is a crazy story. The reward for this man, for helping the Jews, was so great that he was able to build a city that was never destroyed, a city of eternity, a city of life, a permanent life, a gun aided in land amount, an unbelievable thing. So there is our lesson for us, the people who helped the Jews were rewarded amazingly, right? And there's a lot more to learn about that city, but I just want to finish up the parak here. We don't have any more time. The rest of this parak is a study in downward spiral. Okay, Pasuk Chavzayin, the Lola Rishvinashet Beit Sha'an Metbenotah, Etah Nachet Benotah, 
but Yoshvei Dorvet Benotera, but Yoshvei Yivlamit Benotera. And Benotera means their daughters, but it literally, but it means their environs, their surrounding villages. What actually is happening here? What does this mean? We are being told of the failure of Anasha to get rid of the people in Beit Shan, Tanach, Dor, Yoshvei Das Mikra says some of these places were actually Yisachar and Asher, but we're blaming it all on Menashe because it was their cities. They wanted to, they decided they're going to live there. So you would back into our map. We're moving up, right? Menashe did not get rid of the people in Beit Sha'an. This Beit Sha'an is right there, right? We're heading to the Galil. And the Kanani wanted to stay there, so they stayed there. But when the Jews had strength, when they had the power to do something with these Knanim, they just made them pay taxes. Sometimes they would just pay taxes money, and sometimes it's called mas obeyed. They made them do work for them, but they did not throw them out. Ephraim, Chavtet. Ephraim lower we should Kanani Oshe Begezer, but Yeshua Kanani Bikibo Begezer. Ephraim to get rid of the Kanani in Gezer. Okay, let's see if we can find Gezer. Uh, okay, it's over here. Anyway, okay, we don't really have time to look at it all, but Ephraim is central Israel, and it says here the Kanani dwelt amongst them in Gezer. So it's not just a town of the Canaanim. The Canaanim live amongst the Ephraim people. Now we're going to Zavulin. Zavulin didn't get rid of the people of Kitron and the people of Nalal. By Yeshiva Kanaanim, they dwelt among them and they paid taxes. Okay, so we are not going in a good direction. Follow this. Be Oh, now, look what's happened. Now it's not the Knani dwelt in their midst of the Jews. Now it's the Jews dwell in the midst of the Knani. This is getting worse, right? Naftali This is not Beit Shemesh of today. This is Beit Shemesh of the North. It's Yoshvei Beit Anat, by Yeshev Bekeh Raknani, Yoshvei Aretz, Yoshvei Beit Shemesh, Beit Anat, Be'yulam Lamas. And Naphtali dwelt in the midst of the Knani, Yoshvei Haaretz, they were the dwellers of the land, and Naphtali were the interlopers. But some of them, they got them to pay taxes. Do you see what, uh, what is going on here? Hasek Lamadalet, by Yilachatsu Ha'amoriyat B'nai Dan Ahara, Oh boy. The Amori now are pressuring the children of Don. Go back in the mound. We're not letting you in the valley. Now look what's happening. We really need the map for this one. Okay. So the B'nai Don, where is the territory of Don? Okay. The territory of Don whoa, is over here. It's not clear on this map. Okay, so they put Don up here, but that's the story of chapter 18 in Shoftim, which we're not getting to. They're supposed to be here in Ayalon, all these areas. Beit Shemesh is really Don territory. 
the whole Tel Aviv is done, territory of B'nai Brak. But the Emoi pushed them, pushed them out of the, of the valleys, of the plains. They said, we don't want you here. And they went, but the people of Ephraim helped them out. Okay, let's go back. And the people, uh, the Ephraim people and the Menashe people, mostly Ephraim, helped the Bnei Dan to push off the Emoi and they made them pay taxes. Now, again, this is going to explain why in chapter 18, the Bnei Dan decide that this is not a good area and they're going to move up north because they're having trouble with the Amoi. Why are they having trouble with the Amoi? Because the Amoi are running the show. And the border of the Amoi from this taste, Malayakrabim, from the rock and up. Now we already have a, oh, it's kind. The Amoi have a border. It's not just pockets of little, you know, territories. This is ours and that's yours. So we see that the descent of the tribes, right, even though we're going upwards geographically, spiritually we're going downhill. And this is what um, I call in the, in the Sefer Shoftim, the, the original sin, we should excuse the expression. The first problem is they don't finish the conquest. They are falling apart as a nation. They don't have good leadership. We have a very, very big issue here with the, what's going on. So. Um, a little bit of uh, ending, I hate to end a little bit uh, of on a downer, but we see, okay, we'll stop the share. We see that the, uh, the Sefer Shoftim and Sefer Yoshua, the, the Jewish people, whatever they could not conquer, they did not conquer. And Sefer Shoftim, it sounds like they're sort of like, it's good enough. Now, I find, I'm just going to end with this thought. Sefer Shoftim to be probably the most contemporary um, of all the Sefer Tanakh, most relevant to us, because we, especially those of us who live in Israel, we, we live this. We live in a country where there are pockets of our enemies all around us. Some more, some stronger. Like every day you hear a story, like a few uh, irresponsible people you know, went into Shechem uh, last night trying to get to Kebri Yosef and they were lucky to get out alive. It's illegal actually to go into Shem without an army escort. So we're living in an age where this, this is the reality. The reality of Sefer Shoftim is such that we see uh, all around us, it's not quite there and there's going to be ramifications for that all through the book. We're gonna see ups, we're gonna see downs, we're gonna see beautiful stories, we're gonna see Tremendous things, tremendous Yeshuas of Hashem. But the bottom line is that the, we have to pay attention to the sins of omission, right? The things that you don't do, it's also a problem, not just the things that you do do. And B'nai Israel um, have had a tough time getting it together. So it's up to us. We're going to fix all these mistakes. We're going to do our tshuva and we're going to Daven good and Bezrat Hashem. This will be our, our company came back here and Bezrat Hashem heading for Mashiach. So I want to wish you all a good week and a good month and the Shana Tobah and everything good.